Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about informed consent. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen in to our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice, so don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steve Annette as a patient at his office. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Ron. So this week, we're going to talk about a very important topic, which has to do with what patients' rights are in hospital and doctor situations that a lot of people aren't even aware of. It has to do with a topic called informed consent. So let's start off by going over what informed consent is and why it's important for patients to make sure that this is done the proper way. Okay, so informed consent is simply where a healthcare provider, such as a doctor, nurse, or other healthcare professional, uh, explains medical treatments or procedures to a patient before the patient agrees to them. And this type of communication, which can be written or spoken, uh, allows the patient to ask questions and ultimately to accept or deny treatment. Uh, in my office, we have a standard informed consent form that all patients read, and you know they sign on their first visit before coming back to see me. And if they have any questions, I'm there to answer them and hopefully clear up any concerns or confusions they may have. Uh, We also have a glossary page that helps to define technical words that patients may have a difficult time with. Really, the main reason that informed consent is important for patients is because it's designed to protect them, especially against anything that can result in an adverse event. And as we get into more of the specifics of informed consent, we'll cover how it protects them. Excellent. By the way, informed consent also happens to protect the provider since it can immunize the provider from liability for a known complication that happened to occur in the absence of negligence. So in other words, if the patient was aware of the risk of the complication and agreed to have the procedure anyway, the patient cannot be allowed to complain or sue the provider afterward. But if the provider did not disclose the risk of the bad outcome or complication ahead of time, Uh, Even if the provider was not technically negligent in performing the procedure, but a bad outcome occurred, then the patient has the right to take legal action against the provider. All right. So it's important for both sides. Now, there's certain principles that have to do with informed consent. What are those four principles? You know, I've seen some references say that there's as little as three principles or elements, and others have more than eight Wow. As many as eight. Yeah. So I found a really nice peer-reviewed journal article published on June 1st of this year in Stat Pearls titled Informed Consent. And it emphasized five required elements of, for documentation of the informed consent discussion. So I thought we'd go over those. Good. All right. So the first one is describing the nature of the procedure so that you know they understand what they're getting into. Uh, two is going over the risks and benefits of the procedure. 
Three is discussing reasonable alternatives to the proposed procedure. Uh, four would be looking at the risks and benefits of those alternatives. And then five is assessing the patient's understanding of all these things, plus emphasizing their role in decision-making and finding out their preferences. Really what needs to occur is the health provider must make a recommendation and provide their reasoning for this. But at the same time, he or she must make it clear that the patient is participating in the decision-making process and that he or she must avoid making the patient feel forced to agree with them. Very good point. Yeah, this is all kind of an important thing, especially if somebody's going to be undergoing some type of a potentially dangerous procedure, let's say, especially when it comes to something like surgery. Sure. Now, who's allowed to provide informed consent and who isn't? Well, really, those who can provide informed consent for treatment in a medical facility include the patient as long as he or she is an adult of at least 18 years of age and is competent enough to read and understand the informed consent form and make a decision for themselves. Now, a minor who's 17 years or, and younger cannot make informed consent decisions, so their parent or legal guardian must provide the informed consent for treatment. But there's an exception to this rule, and it's classified as, you know, if somebody's a legally emancipated child, they may provide informed consent for themselves. And some examples of this, but not all, include a minor that's married, serving in the military, pregnant or the mother of children, whether married or not, or is able to prove financial independence. There are laws regarding this, you know, as far as minors and informed consent, and they're different from state to state. So, you know, so it's really important to understand each state's unique laws regarding this. And, you know, in addition, in an emergency situation, if the patient, including a minor, is unable to provide his or her consent, then consent is presumed and treatment is provided. Really, the only thing that would hinder that is if there's a living will or a durable power of attorney for health care that was available or on file. And then another facet of obtaining informed consent is that the healthcare provider that is administering the procedure or treatment is the one that obtains the informed consent from the patient. And this process requires a written detailed explanation of the treatment or procedure along with answering any questions the patient may have concerning what they're going to receive so that the patient can make a knowledgeable or informed choice about the proposed care. So they can't have an assistant do that part of the process. I mean, you know, like in my office, we have the patient sign the informed consent form before they see me and my front desk secretary witnesses the signature. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if they have any questions, then that's handled during their initial consultation. Okay. Good. Now, what's the difference between consent and informed consent? Well, consent is also known as general consent, and that's just simply getting permission verbally, but preferably in writing, before a health professional examines or treats someone. Uh, basically, there's no explanation of the contact that is necessary, but consent to touch the patient is required. Informed consent, on the other hand, is generally required before any type of invasive procedure that carries a material risk of harm that is performed. Uh, so for example, in my office, neck, uh, manual neck spinal manipulation carries an extremely minuscule risk of a stroke, which is at most one in a million. But because of that, my informed consent form includes this fact in the sections titled the material risk inherent in a chiropractic adjustment and the probability of the above risks occurring. All right. 
Good. So that's the difference between the two. Now, are there any instances where informed consent isn't required? Yeah, you know, there are several exceptions to the requirement for this, and they include if the patient is incapacitated, they have a life-threatening emergency with inadequate time to obtain consent, or if they have voluntarily waived consent, they actually can do that. Wow. If the patient's ability to make decisions is questioned or unclear, then an evaluation by a mental health professional to determine competency may be required. And also along these lines, a situation can occur where a patient cannot make decisions independently, but has not yet designated a decision maker. So in this case, the hierarchy of decision makers, which is determined by each state's laws, uh, must be contacted to determine the next legal surrogate decision maker. Usually, you know, it's a family maker Mm -hmm. or a family member, obviously. And if this is unsuccessful, then a legal guardian may be needed to be appointed by the court. Okay. So now... Based on all the information about informed consent, how is it that a patient can use this to either refuse a procedure or a medication? So if they feel that the risks are too high or that it's not right for them, that they don't have to go through with something that the doctor is saying they should get. Well, I mean, first of all, you don't have to agree to anything that you don't want to do or unwilling to do. I mean, it's your body and nobody can force you to have something done against your will. And that's really how things should be, but that's definitely not always the case. And a good example of this is your state that took away the personal and religious exemptions for vaccines and requires that all schools, whether public or private, have all school children vaccinated. Right. Obviously, as a result of this, more and more children are being homeschooled or the families are moving to other states where they don't have to have these strict requirements. Correct. I mean, in our state, we have the Baker Act, which can you know, be pretty suppressive too where somebody has to be sent to a mental health facility because of their behavior that's observed by, I mean, it can be a police officer, it can be a a judge, it can be, you know, a psychiatrist or whatever. And um, that can actually be be an issue too. But there are ways of uh, getting around that as well as everybody should be educated on really what that is. And the organization that really understands this and helps people is the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, CCHR. Now, on a personal note, before my last two shoulder surgeries that I had performed on me, I had an agreement with my orthopedic surgeon and anesthesiologist to, first of all, not talk during the entire procedure to preserve my sanity by avoiding the possibility of post-hypnotic suggestions occurring, and also not using the forgetter drug called Versed, which I covered in detail in podcast episode number 110, covering anesthetics. Mm-hmm. Versed is also commonly used during colonoscopies, and I also went over that in detail in the anesthetics podcast and also what you can do to get out of taking it. So that's one thing. You know, it's hard to say if they even use informed consent on that particular drug when they do colonoscopies, but it's nice to know ahead of time what it is. That's why we've brought this up so that people can actually insert that information, even if it isn't on an informed consent form. You know, I actually have a long list of medications that I will not permit doctors or anesthesiologists to administer to me before, during, or after a surgery. And I've got them here. I mean, I can just quickly go run through these so people have an idea of, you know, they might even adopt some of these. Okay. First of all, I do not want any sedatives at all before, during, or after surgery. And so that's things like Ativan, Valium, benzodiazepines, 
things like obviously Versed's in that column as well as Xanax and Librium. As far as induction agents, what I prefer is that they use what's called propofol, which is also known as Diprovan. What's an induction agent? That helps put you under. Okay. And then the anesthetic gas agent that uh, I prefer for use is called desflurane, which is also known as suprane in what's called a closed circuit, or they can use what's called sevoflurane or ultrane. Okay. I have this all out written out so that I, all I have to do is hand it to them and they just need to look it over and say, okay, yeah, I get that. That's fine. Good. There are alternative induction agents that I would not allow, and that would be sodium pentothal. Also, no way to ketamine. We've gone over that one. Right. As well as nitric, nitrous oxide, laughing gas. <laughs> yeah. I would prefer not to have morphine or any other opioids because of the addiction rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have used Vicodin, and, and if, if I use Vicodin, it's only for one or two doses. So that really hasn't been a problem. But, you know, you can use Toradol instead, which is a really good pain reliever and is non addictive. And as far as afterwards, uh, if there's any nausea, there's several things that are effective for that. Zofran, which is also called Ondansetan, Baclofen. You know, I think that's it. I think those are the best two because they tend to want to use Haldol, the, the neuroleptic, which, right. uh, you know, they wanted to use on Des. I think actually they tried to use Thorazine on him when he had the hiccups, which is just awful. Right. So you want to avoid the neuroleptics, which are Haldol and Thorazine for sure. Okay. Yeah. And it's important to have multiple alternatives because when I was in a hospital with one of my many friends that I go to hospitals with when they have to go in, they were wanting to give them, uh, I think it was for said, and we brought up the, you know, that he's not going to use it. And one thing I, I do want to bring up is sometimes doctors will question you if you say I'm allergic to it, or I can't take it, or you don't want to take it. It's like, well, why? Which is not necessarily their place, but if they do, and it's like, well, how do you know you're allergic? Whatever happened? Questioning somebody like that, it kind of gets defeats the whole purpose of informed consent because the person's saying up front, I don't want to have that. And you have the right to say that. So that's why we're going to get into this in the next question. It's like, if you start getting that type of a reaction from a doctor, you just basically say two words, which is informed consent. I have the right to choose what is and isn't done. So the, the reason I bring this up is because in this particular hospital, they did not have, what was the one that you said is the one you prefer that's an induction agent? Um, it would be propofol, right. also known as Diprovan. Correct. So the problem was they didn't have that oh. as one of the drugs that they use. Because mm-hmm. we had requested that instead of anything like Versed. So it was, you know, either Versed or Valium or something else. So it's important to know that you can be in a situation like that where you say, I don't want to take this one. I'd like to have this one because it's a safer drug. A hospital may not have that on the list of drugs that they use. So you need to have multiple alternatives. So that's important to know. So that's why I brought this particular thing up at this point. A great point. Yep. So, you know, we did a seven-part series on psychotropic medications that included an episode on clinical trials that was about drug studies that withheld some of the adverse events and side effects and eliminated some of the test subjects. 
which would have had a negative effect on the results. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when someone is prescribed a mind-altering prescription medication, the informed consent is simply the drug insert, which can be many pages long and difficult to read and understand. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I recommend going to sites like drugs.com to find out anything you want about any drug. And it, you know, it's in a very nice and organized, easy to understand format. You should absolutely question your doctor about each medication regarding side effects, drug interactions, because you may be on other medications and you need to know if that's going to be troublesome as well as, you know, overdosing, you know, how much is too much as well as, you know, and so on and so on. And if you decide that you don't want to take what's recommended, then you should ask for alternatives. And if the doctor gets upset with you for not wanting to take a medication or to do a procedure, then you really should find another doctor who's more understanding and willing to give you other recommendations. Yeah, get another opinion at the very least. Exactly. Now, included in that seven-part series on psych drugs was an episode that covered ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, also known as electroshock therapy. If any doctor recommends this for you, then just get up and leave. Right. Uh, I doubt that their informed consent form that should be given to you before the doctor even sees you and explains it uh, contains, you know, all of the or any of the potential horrific side effects. Because if it did, anybody with half a brain would absolutely absolutely say no to that. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact is that ECT is designed to produce seizures in the brain, including potentially lethal grand mal seizures using up to 450 volts of electricity, which is 4,500 times the natural current produced by the brain. I mean, this procedure should have been banned many decades ago. Really, it should have never been allowed in the first place. <laughs> mm -hmm. But today, it's still performed on 100,000 people in the United States, including children under the age of five. So, you know, to find out more about this brutal and barbaric pseudoscience, you can listen to podcast number 82, which goes into a lot of detail about it. And it has some excellent references on it in the podcast notes. And also myself and Dr. Alf Garbett have a website uh, at stopect or stop-ect.org, which is the doctor's coalition against electroconvulsive therapy, where health professionals like us are signing on to help end this ridiculous practice in the mental health industry. Uh, one final thing along these lines is um, I want to talk a little bit about vaccines. Okay. And as far as they're concerned, I also doubt that informed consent forms contain any information about the adjuvants or the potentially toxic additives that are put into vaccines and, you know, their side effects, especially when the CDC and the media ignore this and push the safe and effective line that cannot be questioned. Otherwise, you're branded as an anti-vaxxer. Right. So to find out more about adjuvants in vaccines, you can go back and listen to podcast episode number 36 on immunizations and vaccinations where I cover them in detail. And also along these lines, I just read an ebook from RFK Jr.'s nonprofit, uh, The Children's Health Defense, and it's called How Censorship is Redefining Informed Consent as Misinformation. Okay. Now, what would you say is the most important overriding protection that's part of informed consent? that patients need to be aware of and the main things that the main thing that people need to be remembering about that particular overriding principle. I mean, really, I mean, we've covered this already, but the bottom line is that it gives patients the right to refuse treatment and, you know, to leave and get a second opinion. 
Uh, obviously, there are exceptions to this if someone is in a life and death situation or has an infection like COVID-19 and they're actually contagious and need to be quarantined in a hospital setting. But even while they're there, you know, an individual should be given informed consent as far as the recommended treatments and be part of the decision-making process, such as requesting certain medications early on like hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin and zinc, or later on receiving other medications or possibly being put on a ventilator. Right. You know, remember I gave the example in at least one prior podcast about our father having hiccups after his hip surgery and they wanted to give him the neuroleptic drug Thorazine. Right. But instead I was able to get them to administer a safer and effective alternative that worked like a charm. And I believe you've got some experience with this type of scenario too. Yeah. And the bottom line is that people need to know what their rights are. And that's one of the reasons for this episode and why it's so important because if people don't know what their rights are, then they're basically going to be sitting ducks. And it's not just that the doctors are supposed to do this. The patients need to know that the doctors need to do this. They need to know that it's up to them to ask questions to make sure it makes sense to them. It's up to them to make the decision as to whether something is going to be done or not. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to necessarily go into any examples, but I've been through this situation with people I've accompanied to emergency rooms and hospitals, and I've kind of seen it where the patient is provided with something in writing about a procedure. I, I don't think I've ever seen them provided with anything in writing about medications they're given. It's just, okay, you need to take this. And here's the list of drugs the doctor wants to give you. So in that respect, and it's not somebody who's like lying there bleeding to death. This happened with our mother when she was in the hospital and they gave her, I think it was Ativan for sleeping. And it was mm -hmm. like, boy, that was a nasty thing. She was loopy. Yeah. And I don't remember because I was there. You and I were there with her all the time. I don't remember any of these medications Never. where it was described. No. Okay, so these are, this is why we're giving it to you. This is what the potential side effects are. This is the benefits of taking it. These are the alternatives that you can do and so on and so forth. That just wasn't done. And so I've seen the same thing in other procedures. And I know of one recently where somebody was going to have a major surgery, which in their circumstances was more of a risk than a benefit. And they got the written information. The doctor did actually go over some of the things with them, but they had to get advice from a family friend, part of the family actually, who's a medical doctor about this situation. So people need to understand that if you're going to rely on the doctor completely, you better hope you have one of those doctors who does everything the way that they're supposed to and isn't going to just poo-poo any of your concerns or considerations about doing things. So it's, it's really up to the people, the patient, I hate to say it, the patient and their family to make sure informed consent is done the correct way. But if they don't even know that this exists or that this is one of their most important rights as a patient, they're not going to implement it. They're not going to do it. That's why I felt this was such an important episode to do more so than almost any other one, because people will find themselves in the situation many, 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 many times having to do with procedures that are done or drugs that they're being prescribed. And 
you know, they're given the impression that they don't really have a choice and there is always a choice, except in very rare circumstances. There's a few times where there isn't going to be. Most of the time that there is, they have to know this. And if they're sitting with a doctor and asking questions and the doctor's saying, oh, there's no problem with such and such, and they have the piece of paper that's the informed consent that they sign, my advice is they get a pen and they write down what the, what the doctor said. I asked the doctor, blah, 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 and you write down, Dr. Smith said there are no risks at taking this and have them write it in front of the doctor. Because I have to tell you, I've been around where doctors are like, yeah, it's a minor thing. You don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. That's not informed consent. That's right. So this is very, very important that people need to be aware of this particular right. I hope a lot of people do listen to this episode. And um, now, is there anything else you'd like to say about this topic before we end? Well, I mean, just something just came to mind, and that is... Um there, I, I saw some really good articles. I didn't include them, but there's some really good articles that you can just Google and, and it'll be, what questions should I ask the doctor? Mm-hmm. You know, that way you're prepared ahead of time instead of like trying to think on the spot because half the time you're going to forget what to ask them. And, and when you find what questions you want to ask, just write them down ahead of time so you don't forget them. And then keep notes and also have your phone ready because if they start describing things and you want more information, the doctor's really busy, you have to go to the other room, you can start looking this stuff up, you know, on, on legitimate websites like WebMD and, you know, Mayo Clinic and so forth. And then all same thing with the medications on drugs.com. So you have to be also responsible for this, if, whether it's for you or for a family member. We had to do that with our mom, uh, with some of the medications. And back then we didn't have smartphones. So we actually, we had to go downstairs to the computer and go on the internet and look, look a lot of these things up. And that's how I was able to find the alternative medication for my dad instead of the uh, Thorazine. I found that, you know, I, I looked at all the research and I found this one had like no side effects and they were totally cool about prescribing it. And his, his uh, hiccups went away in like no time. Yep. So Pay attention and don't wait until you're going to see a doctor or going into a hospital for surgery to look stuff up. I would recommend after listening to this to start getting that information now because something happens that you're going to the emergency room tomorrow unexpectedly, this is going to be the last thing on your mind. But if you've already looked it up and kind of figured out what questions to ask when you're in that situation, then you have a better chance of remembering to do that and what to ask. Anyway, so like I said, I think this is a very, very, very important episode, especially these days. And next week, we're going to be going into something that's kind of related. It has to do with emergency medical situations because we've been talking about like going to the hospital or the emergency room. But this is what do you do if you're faced with something for yourself or somebody around you where it's an emergency medical situation? what do you do in these circumstances? We're going to go through some different scenarios of some emergency medical situations, what you should do and what you shouldn't do so that you might be prepared if one of those things comes up. So that's going to be next week's episode. All right. Should be interesting. Yes, it definitely will be. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week, 
And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week. Music